The federal conservatives are looking for a new leader after Aaron O'Toole was dumped in a vote by members of his caucus. This comes on the heels of a disappointing election result, and as the party reckoned with its response to the convoy that has occupied swaths of downtown Ottawa for nearly two weeks. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. In a special panel discussion, National Post comment editor Carson Jarama and National Post columnist Adam Zevo join me to discuss why O'Toole was sent packing, what the race to replace him will look like, and how the party needs to position itself to beat Justin Trudeau. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Carson, over the last couple of weeks, much has been made of whether Aaron O'Toole could hang on to the leadership of the Conservative Party. This was all brought to a head as the so-called Freedom Convoy was making its way into Ottawa. Not long after they arrived, Aaron O'Toole was out. Why do you think the time was up for Aaron O'Toole as leader of the Conservative Party? Was it purely tied to his response to the Freedom Convoy or were there other issues at play for him? A few days before the convoy started at the end of last month, there was a report released by MP James Cumming, which autopsied the federal election that the Conservatives had lost. And there were some complaints in there about, you know, O'Toole's, he was too scripted, didn't consult with people too much time on TV, less time out meeting with people. And there's always been a sense that, you know, Aaron O'Toole wanted this to be the Aaron O'Toole party, not the Conservative party. Conservatives that I know that I speak to regularly, there's there's always been a sense of sort of resentment among some in the caucus about O'Toole and his view of trying to make the party about him, while at the same time trying to push his caucus to the side. He seems genuinely afraid his caucus might say something or do something or believe something that might actually be considered conservative. And there's been concerns about his leadership that have been going back basically since he started. A lot of this has also has to do with his like often shifting positions on policy. Of course, you know, he presented himself as the so-called true blue candidate against Peter McKay and then quickly pivoted on a number of issues, most important being climate change. You know, he was against the carbon tax until he was for carbon tax, but he wasn't even for carbon tax. He was for this weird uh, carbon savings account. If there was a policy position that Aaron O'Toole held, you could be sure that it was going to change in a couple of weeks. There just wasn't a sense that he spoke for the party, that he had control of the party and the people there. So when the convoy happened, a conservative leader who had control of his caucus, was firmly in control, could have either A, said, look, I share your concerns about vaccine mandates and pandemic restrictions, but I'm not going to meet with you because of some problematic elements, or they could have just met with them and been fine. Mm -hmm. But Aaron O'Toole, being Aaron O'Toole, chose to try and do both at the same time. So I don't know that the convoy was the trigger. It certainly felt like it, but it certainly was opportune given um, all the, how the other issues had uh, come to head you know, in the days before. Adam, what are your thoughts on what led to Aaron O'Toole's ouster? I mean, I think he had an admirable political project, but he went about executing it the wrong way, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to push the conservatives more towards the center and um, endorse a more red Tory view of conservatism. However, O'Toole recognizes it was a difficult task. And instead of persuading people of the importance of this task, he essentially subverted and dictated, right? You know, this goes back to the conservative leadership race where rather than being forthright about his beliefs, he misrepresented himself and then pivoted after he acquired power. So right from the get-go, there was a deficit of trust. 
when it came to the election, you know, he, he came out with this, you know, robust platform and just kind of said, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. And it didn't felt as if he'd consulted with other conservatives mm-hmm. and really had, you know, genuine buy-in. Everyone just seemed as if they were being roped along the Aaron O'Toole show. And people were willing to tolerate that so long as there was some sort of benefit. But unfortunately, the electoral benefits of the strategy didn't really come out. I think that O'Toole was more successful than people realized, but not successful enough. He managed to maintain, for the most part, the conservatives' vote share, while at the same time having his base, you know, a large part of his base flocked to the PPC. So it seems that conservatism as a whole grew in Canada. Mm -hmm. And for example, in Ontario, in the 2019 election, the Liberals got 25% more votes than the Conservatives, whereas in 2021, they only got 12.5% more votes. So there was some success, but just not enough to justify that bargain going forward. And it seemed as if other members of caucus were willing to tolerate this a bit longer, depending on how O'Toole played his cards, and he misplayed them. He was overly aggressive towards his own party. He didn't try to reconcile the two different wings and essentially waged an internal war, describing blue Tories as, you know, being bigots and being progressive. Speaking as a red Tory, you know, that might apply to some fringes. But if you're the leader of your party, you you don't use such a broad brush Mm -hmm. to use language that is better suited for a liberal attack ad than a conservative leader. A lot is being said about where the party goes from here what the party looks like under a new leader. And there are some who believe that the two options are just you're either liberal light, as some people say O'Toole tried to be during part of the last campaign, or kowtowing to the fringes of the party and bringing itself in line with Maxime Bernier's People's Party of Canada. Adam, what do you think the party needs to be going forward? And how do they differentiate themselves from those two positions? Honestly, I think that they can differentiate themselves through fiscal discipline and economic conservatism while endorsing social libertarianism. Mm -hmm. I think on social issues, it seems pretty obvious that hardcore, more traditional conservatives are a little bit stuck in the past, unfortunately. And I know that that's kind of loaded language used to describe them. But many of the culture wars that we've seen over the past 20 years have resolved decisively on the side of progressives. So I think social progressivism is, you know, something that the conservative party should embrace, but maybe focus more so on individual liberty and equality rather than collectivism and equity like, you know, the liberals and the NDP do. So I think on that front, you know, there isn't a lot of space to differentiate too much. Yeah. But when it comes to economic issues, the conservatives have this really powerful message about how overspending and fiscal irresponsibility will sabotage the future of Canadians. Right. Inflation has already kicked in. It's already becoming a huge issue. Pierre's made massive waves talking about that. And I think that if the conservatives really hone in on that and talk about how they can fix Canada's books, then that's great. Now, I think that's something that wasn't really possible last summer because there was still this idea that the pandemic required flagrant spending. But now that inflation has really gone up, people are starting to rethink you know, how wise is it to continue with overspending in the future? Carson, from your perspective, is it a case of those bread and butter conservative issues, especially on the fiscal plane that can help them stand apart from Justin Trudeau's liberals, which we all know have have spent billions and billions of dollars 
more than initially intended in the budget, partly due to COVID, but we don't see that going away anytime soon. So the first part of my answer, I would say that there's certainly room for conservatives on the fiscal side, on the side of free markets, for them to put out a, a program that is clearly differentiated from the Liberals and the NDP. You wouldn't have seen it or you barely saw it in the federal election. There were hints of it, but it wasn't there. But I don't necessarily agree that there's this distinction between social conservatism and economic conservatism. I think there's elements of social conservatism that I wouldn't agree with. I think that what we think of social conservatism should be avoided. We tend to think of them as like hot button issues, but I don't think we can say that we have smart economic policy on one side and culture war on the other. I think it's all culture war now. The National Post did a series, which Adam contributed to, called The Capitalist Manifesto. And the reactions, I mean, you could argue that everything the National Post does is The Capitalist Manifesto, but <laughs> you could argue that the reaction to that series was out of control. It was what it, we were accused of being white supremacists. We were accused of launching a class war. Like everything is heated. If you say that you want to lower taxes, that gets pulled into the culture war. I don't know that we can necessarily separate those things that way maybe we neatly thought we, thought we could in the past. And second, the idea of social conservatism doesn't necessarily mean opposition to things like gay rights. It doesn't have to mean opposition to some abortion rights. What it does mean is an understanding that community and family play a role and adding an element of responsibility to go with our liberties. I'm not necessarily saying that that's a program I support, but I think there's a way to meld fiscal responsibility with personal responsibility in a way that would appeal to people that we might call social conservatives. I think sometimes the distinction that some philosophical conservatives might make between, say, this is kind of what Stephen Harper talked about, about Hayek conservatives and Burkean conservatives, I don't necessarily see the distinction as much. I mean, that's a hard thing to articulate given what people believe about these issues. Mm -hmm. But I think like someone being able to articulate that sort of unified idea of conservatism will be helpful for the, the party. We'll be right back. You raise an interesting point about all of these arguments being part of a culture war. And as you mentioned, the, the reaction to the posts, the capitalist manifesto being kind of very overblown in some circles. And then you look at the convoy protests and the reaction to that. And even the idea that, you know, conservative party MPs would want to talk to some of these people, you get this outlandish reaction that, you know, the conservatives are in line with white supremacists and, and on and on and on. It's proven to appear to be a challenge for the party. How do they avoid controversy around issues that are contentious in the public sphere? And are there issues that they should just avoid? Carson, what are your thoughts on that? I think they just have to be confident about who they are and what they believe and realize that other people don't get to tell them what to do and what to believe. But they, part of the issue is they are inconsistent or perhaps willfully blind. So the core message of the convoy protest is something that a conservative should easily be able to latch onto, right? The cross-border vaccine mandates, even though you can be pro-vaccine, but think the mandates are intrusive, pandemic restrictions, you can say they've gone on too long, but there's some elements among the organizers that have some, you know, not, not really great ideas. You wouldn't want to associate themselves with conspiracy theories, QAnon, conspiracy theories about vaccines. And to be able to handle that needs a bit of depth. But in terms of issues they should avoid, 
I think Adam might have a clear idea on, on this here, but I, I, I don't know that there's any issues I think they should avoid. I do think that there's perhaps issues that they should emphasize over others. I think they should emphasize the importance of work, the importance of looking after your you know work and family and sort of those sort of core conservative ideas and build sort of platforms around that. I mean, that was the best part about Aaron O'Toole's platform is that it made the idea of work front and center but then presented a social democratic platform for achieving those goals. But the idea of that is very conservative. It's less about avoiding one issue over another and emphasizing the issues that are more likely to bring people to your side. Adam, what are your thoughts on the idea of either contentious issues that they should avoid or how to frame issues that might be controversial? I can't think of many issues that should be avoided full stop. I think it's a question of how to tactfully approach them. Mm -hmm. So I think, for example, you know, as Carson said, the trucker convoy, you know, that's something which didn't have to be the minefield that it became. But unfortunately, the conservatives approached the issue so ineptly that they managed to somehow absorb most of the damage without actually achieving anything. I agree with Carson that it's important to focus on positive messages that people can rally around. And I think that if the conservatives are to be successful there, they need to think about what issues genuinely and really viscerally affect normal Canadians. So, for example, it seemed as if the Conservatives were doing really well in the first phase of the election because they were talking about housing. And housing is something which everyone is anxious about. Pierre Polyver, he is doing really well when he talks about inflation, because inflation is another thing that people are really concerned about. I think if Conservatives talked about economic issues that seem quite dire, and made it emphatically clear that they're really interested in supporting the average Canadian, then that could be a compelling message. But I don't see that being done well enough currently. Looking at the leadership candidates so far, you, you touched on some of the messaging we were getting from Pierre Polyev talking about inflation in his launch video about you know how life is becoming unaffordable for the average people. But he also you know, some interesting elements of tone to that video. He talked about running for prime minister instead of party leader. He talked about railing against money interests in the business community and the likes of us in the media elite. Who is he trying to target with this messaging, this idea that you're not getting ahead, inflation is going to make life harder for us, and I'm going to look out for the little guy against these big figurative monsters in our lives. Who's he trying to target with that, Adam? I think, you know, he's trying to tap into a sort of populist anger at social inequality. And I think trying to pick up voters who are alienated by the current dominant strain of progressivism, which many view as elitist. Mm -hmm. When you look at the left, there seems to be this chasm between two different wings. You have working class people who are more salt of the earth, who are interested in economic equality and unionization and just ensuring that everyone has a fair chance at success. And then you have a sort of like white collar, highly educated arts and culture wing of progressivism, which is really interested in waging perpetual culture wars and policing language and is quite frankly exhausting to everyone. And I think that Pierre Polyev's strategy is to appeal to inner suburban voters who are exhausted by sort of woke progressivism and who are looking for a government which can talk about fairness and equality of opportunity, but without all of the aggressive cultural baggage that comes with telling people that they're white supremacists because they don't use the term Latinx 
Carson, what are your thoughts on the idea of the party tapping into the populist anger? Is that what the party needs right now? Is that a good strategy for victory for Pierre Polyev? Well, I think it might be a good strategy for Pierre Polyev, whether it's a good strategy for the election generally is a different question. I think it depends on how they articulate that. It's one thing to tap into sort of populist issues, you know, the people on the left or this idea that liberal elites are looking down on you. They think they're better than you. They speak better than you. There's one way to sort of like tap into that. But there's also a way to tap into that in a way that is very unproductive, Mm -hmm. where you just end up villainizing, vilifying your opponents. And this is the big problem that everyone is vilifying each other. I think liberals and conservatives can reasonably disagree and have different views on what's best for Canada. But vilification of each other is, I don't want to say dangerous because I don't want to overblow things, but we're spent so much time trying to just express how we think the other side isn't just someone we disagree with. They're barely human. There is a danger of moving towards that if you go the populist route. That said, there are sort of cultural things going on, and, and Adam touched on these, the idea of like the way people react just to how normal people speak or just how you know people look down on certain types of work, right? Like, you know, people say, well, how about we just stop having an economy about pulling things out of the earth? <laughs> and it's like, well, I mean, there's people work with their hands and, you know, we can't all be knowledge workers. We can't all be tech developers, you know? Yeah. I do think that it's important that there's a party that says, no, 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 I understand how you feel about this. Mm -hmm. But there has to be a way to do that without also just saying, but liberals are also basically Satan. I mean, that might be a winning message in some circles, but but I, I see your point there. You know, as of this recording, Pierre Polyev is the only candidate to officially throw his hat into the ring, but there's been talk of all sorts of other names jumping into the race there. You know, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. National Post columnist and friend of the show, Tasha Carradine, Leslin Lewis, who ran previously, and then some even old standby names like Peter McKay, former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, and even old-time federal PC leader Jean Charest. You know, Carson, who could you conceivably see as running? And given kind of the fractured nature of where things are at with the party right now, and a lot of people talking about how there's division in the party. Are there people who you could see conceivably sit this one out? The conservatives that I've spoken to, some people that are involved in the party, not necessarily MPs, but people who are involved in the party, the sense that they have is that initially was that if Polyev enters, there's going to be a lot of people who just be like, I'm, I'm not going, I'm not going to try. He very clearly speaks for a large parts of the party. He basically has acted as if he's been the leader the last little while anyway. <laughs> like John Robson, who's a columnist for us, he says, you know, Aaron O'Toole has leadership problems. He's the leader. That was the the point. So I think having someone like Polyev in, in there really sort of makes it hard for others, even if you might struggle a bit to gain some support among the party more generally. I don't know about that, but I do think that he does appear to have so much support among the caucus and a certain wing of the party that he would be very hard to move against. I don't know what, what Lesson Lewis might do, but it seems a lot of the people that might support her would just as easily support Proliev. Mm-hmm. Peter McKay would be interesting. I don't know if he's going to do that. I think maybe he will. Uh, Tasha, I really like Tasha. I will not comment on that. I have no comment on <laughs> Tasha. But all aside, I think she's a very reasonable person and she has a lot of conservative ideas. And um, I, I would never call her not a conservative. She's got very sort of strong conservative ideas around things like family and also the economy. And she's also been very clear about pushing back on catering to extremists. So it might, she might be somebody that could appeal to different parts of the party because she does have strong conservative beliefs, but is trying to make it clear on where that line 
actually is. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't want to speculate too much. Those are just my initial thoughts. Yeah. Adam, last word on this to you. Do you feel that Polyev's candidacy makes it less appealing for others to jump into the race? Or could you reasonably see someone like Peter McCabe decide to take another crack at it, Tasha Carradin step in to make it a more interesting race? I mean, I think it's self-evident that Polyev's entry into the race will definitely push many other people out. He is a juggernaut, right? I mean, his announcement that he is, quote unquote, running for prime minister has 4 million views on Twitter. Hmm. You know, his Twitter following is 280K versus O'Toole's, which was, I think, about 150. And I know that Twitter's not real life, but it does say something there. As Carson said, you know, Pierre's basically positioned himself as the shadow leader of the party for the past few months, and many people have just accepted that. I think that it would be very difficult for anyone to win against him. So as much as, for example, I like Tasha, I'm not sure if it's realistic to run at this point. I think that Leslie Lewis would have a difficult time running against Pierre because Pierre's sufficiently conservative that he could siphon away a lot of her support. Maybe Peter McKay could compete against Polyev, but it depends on whether McKay is interested in running. He seems to have made some overtures, but it's unclear. But things are so early right now that it's so difficult to speculate. I mean, things change so quickly. But on the whole, I'm expecting a Polyev win here. I know it's a, a race that people will be paying a lot of attention to over the next weeks and months. And, you know, maybe we'll have you guys on again to discuss that race. Adam Zivo, Carson Jarama, thanks for your time. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having us. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests, Carson Jarama and Adam Zivo. More from both of them at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.